All right. Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is, uh, I don't know if you saw, but uh, I was drinking right before I came up uh, because I didn't want to distract you by having kind of a, you know, like a itch in my voice or anything. And then I spilled it all over myself. So my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. No, I'm kidding. I'm Jesse. Uh, It's with great humility that I come before you. We're continuing our series through the book of 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, why don't you grab it and turn there? Uh, we started in 1 Samuel, then we're in 2 Samuel now, and then afterward we'll do something else. Um, but we're going through the books of Samuel. We're learning about not just the life of Samuel, as you might think, but also the life of Saul in the last book, and then the life of David primarily. And today we're in chapter 14. We're more than halfway through, if you can believe it, 2 Samuel 14. We're going to go through the entire chapter, and uh, we'll read it as we go along. So once you get there, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. 2 Samuel 14, I think most of you are there from what I could tell. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and we sit ourselves before your holy word. God, I do not preach to this church as if I am above them in any way, God, at least on my own. All I am is just a messenger of your word. And God, I pray that you would make that true. God, I pray that I would be able to preach, not myself, as the text says, God, but preach Christ. And I pray that you would help me. God, we know that your word is living and active, that it has the power to do what we cannot do as human beings. So God, I pray that you would use it, that you would, by your spirit, transform us and open up our eyes. And I pray, God, that we would leave here transformed and changed, maybe even saved by your grace. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In April 2014, some of you guys might remember this, but it was all over the news. In South Korea, this ferry, the MW Sewol, I think I'm saying that right, I'm not sure, but the MW Sewol was all over the news because for some inexplicable reason, it started to sink. Do you remember this? It was a ferry disaster. It was a routine trip. It was something that it had done hundreds of times, the same voyage, the same route. And yet this one time in the middle of April, for some reason, it started to tip over. And apparently what happened was the crew tried to make this turn that was too sharp for how high the boat was. And it started to rearrange inside. When it was turning, some of the cargo started to move and the weight got messed up and it started to list and it just fell over into the water. It happened slowly at first, and then it completely just capsized. Now, it was a terrible tragedy for a lot of reasons. One, there were so many people on board. There were something like 400-something people, and 300 of them about were high school students who were on a field trip. And they're just going on a ferry. It's like a routine thing. It's supposed to be safe. They're not even going that fast. And yet, hundreds of these people lost their lives. But what made this tragedy stand out above so many others, the thing that pushed this story to the top of the headlines, wasn't so much the death toll, even though that was tragic and terrible. It was the video footage that came out, the photographs that came out afterward and during. One of the few people to actually escape the ferry. One of the first people actually to get off 
and to save his own life was the captain of the ship. Do you guys remember this? Now, okay, there's no law. There's no law in any country that says that a captain of a ship must die on board. No one has ever said that in writing. However, we've all heard the phrase, right? The captain should go down with the ship. It's ingrained into popular consciousness. So something strikes us as off when a captain would be one of the first people to actually save his own skin and jump off a sinking ship. The videos and the photographs, they went viral for a reason. It's because in the entire world, everyone basically felt that this was wrong. But now here's a question, and this is where we'll really start the sermon. Why? It's not illegal. So why did we all feel like it was wrong? I mean, if you think about it objectively, it was a dangerous situation. The opportunity came up for the captain to escape, to be one of the few people to save his own lives. And on top of that, the captain was close to retirement. He was getting up there in years. There wasn't much he could do physically to help people get off the boat, apparently. And again, there's no law that says it's illegal for him to leave. So why does it sit so poorly with all of us? The answer really is simple. Because the captain is the captain. See, I was looking into some of this. I didn't want to go too deep into maritime law and all of that. But after the Titanic, actually, almost every single nation on earth got together to pass these minimal standards for maritime travel. They wanted to have some rules and regulations, some guidelines, so that everyone would be on the same page. This is kind of where the popular idea of everyone, or the captain goes down with the ship, got into everyone's minds. And here's what they say. Here's the agreement. Not that the captain must stay on board to die as law, but that the captain is the ultimate authority on the ship. And therefore, it is the captain's responsibility to quote, proceed with all speed, unquote, to help any people on board in distress. See, the captain goes down with the ship, not because it's a rule, but because of definition. It's part of what it means to be the captain of the ship. Authority entails responsibility. And this is supposed to be the case regardless of the circumstances. As a matter of fact, it's when the chips are down, really, that this should be most apparent. And yet, as the M.W. Sewell showed us, in real life, that's not always the case, is it? And it's not that hard to translate this to our own lives. Maybe you weren't on a sinking ship literally, but maybe you've been on a sinking ship in other ways. I mean, who here cannot relate to this? You had a leader that you looked up to. It was their responsibility to help out the company or your family or the church or whatever. And yet when trouble came, you looked off into the distance and that person was running away. I mean, how many of us have ever been let down by a leader? Don't raise your hands. Now, we're in the 14th chapter of 2 Samuel. I don't know if you've read ahead at all. But a lot of the passages we've been looking at have been heavy, but they've also been familiar. We kind of know what's going on. We know these stories, and yet we come to 2 Samuel 14, and this is a chapter that is a little different. 
For the last couple of chapters, we've had our attention directed to the fallout from David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, you remember. The Lord sent his prophet Nathan to confront David. And he tells him this parable about a rich man who has everything, who takes a poor man who has nothing except for a sheep. He takes the poor man's sheep and he kills it to serve some people so heartlessly. David is outraged and then David condemns himself by condemning this fictional rich man. And to David's credit, he repents when he's called out and God forgives him. But that doesn't mean there weren't going to be consequences. If you remember a few chapters back, Nathan warned him, the sword will never depart from your house. And we've been seeing that for the past couple of chapters. The focus has been on David's family, on his house. We saw earlier that Amnon, David's firstborn son, had this strange obsession, this sick lust for his half-sister Tamar, and it led to him uh, violently violating her taking away her virginity. We talked about this. We don't have to get into it. David got angry, but he did nothing. So Absalom, Tamar's full brother and half-brother to Amnon, decides to take matters into his own hands, and he orchestrates the murder of Amnon. Brother kills brother. It's fratricide. And David was heartbroken. But again, even though he feels a lot, he does nothing. The last thing we heard was that Absalom fled, and for three years now he has been in self-imposed exile out of Israel. And now here we come to the 14th chapter of this book, and the focus shifts a little bit. We're still talking about Absalom, about David, but what's emphasized in this chapter is decisively different. See, these past few chapters, we focused a lot on David's personal failings as a man. We focused on his uh, family failings as a father, But the spotlight on this chapter is on David as the king. In case we forgot, David is the king of Israel. God called him and installed him to be the leader of his own people. And in case we did forget, it's unmistakable in this text. If you look at verse 1, the king's heart. Verse 4, save me, O king. Verse 5, the king. Verse 8, the king. And it just goes on throughout the entire chapter. He's called the king dozens upon dozens of times times. Authority entails responsibility. So this chapter, while it might seem strange, really what it's about is through the midst of all of this drama and difficulty, how is David doing as the king of Israel? And short answer, he's failing here too. And there's lessons for us in and through this failure. So let's get into it. Three points from the text. As we break it down, we'll look at it in three parts under three headings. Really three failings, you could say. The first point, the failure of discernment. David's failure of discernment, which is about the need, you could say, for true wisdom. And this is the longest point, so just warning you, okay? It's the longest one. Verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, let me just say right off the bat that this is one of those chapters where from the very beginning, when you read it, you're like, what is this even about? 
Like, what is going on? There's not a lot of explanation. You kind of have to know what the context is. So let me explain a couple of things. First, it starts with Joab. Who is Joab? He's the general of David's armies, and he's also David's nephew. So he's Absalom's cousin. Basically, though, since David was having all of these troubles with Saul, I mean, from the beginning, when David became king, Joab has been by his side as one of his most loyal servants. I mean, when David gave him the orders to let Uriah die, to send him to the front lines and draw back, Joab obeyed without question. I mean, Joab is loyal to a fault. Now, second, Joab knows something about the king. He's been watching all of this unfold. We haven't seen Joab lately, but he's been there. Make no mistake. He knows that David's heart is going out to Absalom. Now, the Hebrew construction of this phrase is is a little difficult to understand. We talked about that a little last week. But when it says his heart went out to Absalom, if you look at that Hebrew kind of terminology or that usage elsewhere in the Old Testament, it means all sorts of different things. It can mean that he was concerned for Absalom, that he's like worried. How's Absalom doing? I care about him. Or... It can mean that he's worried about Absalom. It can mean that he's worried, what is Absalom going to do next? Do we need to stop him? What's going to happen? It could mean hostility. It could mean obsession. He's just turning it over in his mind. He can't get it out of his head. I don't think the scripture is being ambiguous or unclear by accident. I think the truth is David feels all these things. He doesn't know how to feel. His son just killed his other son. He loved them both. What is he supposed to do? So Joab knows that David is torn up about it. So third, Joab hatches this plan. And this is where the text picks up. He knows David is conflicted at the very least. And maybe Joab would just let it go if it was just some drama between his uncle and his cousin. But it's not just that. See, things start to snap into focus. David is not just a father. Absalom is not just a son. David is the king of Israel. And Absalom is the next in line. Do you see this? David's not getting any younger. We already know that he's getting older. He's not a young man. Absalom is the next in line now that Amnon is dead. So if you put two and two together, in Joab's mind, the stake, the future of the country is in jeopardy. Right, because what's going to happen? Let's say David dies and they're still estranged. There's been no decision made about Absalom. What's going to happen to the country? You're going to put another son in charge? Well, Absalom's going to come back and say that he rightfully should take the throne. It's going to be a mess. There needs to be something that happens between David and Absalom. So Joab takes a page out of God's book, so to speak, just as God sent Nathan, his prophet, to confront David with a story. Joab decides to try to do the same thing. He sends a woman of Tekoa to tell David a story. Now, unfortunately, this woman is no prophet of God, and Joab definitely, for sure, is not God. So listen to the entire exchange here. This is what Joab tells her to tell David. The conversation goes back and forth, so I want you to hear the flow of this. But look at verse 4. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face on the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. 
And so they would destroy the air also. All, uh, thus, they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. Now stop there for a moment. Understand the situation. The woman is pretending to be a widow. This isn't real. Joab gave her the script. Okay, she's an actress. But presumably she wants the king's help. She has a situation. Her two sons got into an argument. And in the heat of the argument, one of them rose up and he struck the other. Kind of Cain and Abel vibes here a little bit. Now everyone wants judgment on the murderer for what he did. But she feels like she's in a bind because she only had two sons. One of them is dead now, but the other one, if he pays the price for what he did, then she'll be left with nothing. She's a widow. There's no one to inherit the estate. There's no one to pass on the family name and she'll be all alone. So she feels like, okay, can you help me out here? Because I know what's right, but can you do something to help me? Because this doesn't actually help me. So she delivers this Oscar-worthy performance. David wants more time to think about it, but the woman, she is very smart. She was chosen for a reason. She doesn't let him think about it because she jumps into even more. Verse 9, look. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king. And on my father and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Verse 11. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again, Absalom. And there you go. Nathan told the parable about the rich man and the poor man. And at the end, when David was all mad, he said, actually, you are the man. Here, the woman of Tekoa pulls the same card. She gets David to render judgment. And then she says, this is actually about you. Why don't you bring Absalom home then if you feel so strongly about my son? But here's the thing. What exactly happened here? David wants to think about it. Understand, it's a hard situation. He wants to think about it, but she she keeps going. She says, on me, be the guilt. And what she's doing here is she's appealing to the father in David, the part of him that loves his kids no matter what. And that's by design. She knows that that's what she's doing. But she's saying, Can I bear the guilt instead? Could I be punished instead? Just let my boy live. And that resonates. I mean, when she says this, I think she already gets David halfway there. And I think parents, if we're real, we can understand this a little bit. I mean, how many of us have defended our kids when they did something obviously wrong? You know, I think about it all the time where some parent, could be me, some parent, you know, their kid, like does something super bad, obviously, according to the law of God. And then I just say, well, he was tired, right? Like, just chill. You know, she was sleepy. She's cranky. There's some other kid, like, crying and bleeding on the side because of what my kid did. David understands this. He feels compassion. That's why the situation is so hard for him in the first place. I mean, if he didn't care about Absalom, then he would just crush him. 
So he says, I'll make sure no one bothers you. I get it. Parent to parent. Okay, let me try to help you out as much as I can. I know there's a lot of pressure on you. And the reason he says this is because everyone's pressuring her to give up her son. Right? Because if you look at the law, if you go to the nitty gritty a little bit, what her son did or hypothetical son did wasn't murder. It was manslaughter. Okay, if you're into the law or anything like that. He killed him in an argument. It wasn't premeditated. Under the law of God, there is a provision to, to, be, uh, to find refuge after you do something like that. So people don't revenge kill you or something. So she's trying to protect him until he can go to trial. Now she's appealing to the highest court in the land. So he's saying, don't worry about it. I'll help you out. But then what does she do? What does she do? The widow does a good job in moving David along here faster than he wants to move. First, she makes him feel bad for her. We just said that. He offers protection for her. Let me know people are giving you a hard time. But then she makes him feel bad for her son, who is under threat of being killed himself without trial. And then she just slips it in, kind of a throwaway statement. She says, and my son be not destroyed. Do you see that at the end of verse 11? And David takes the bait. First, it becomes about just keeping people off the widow's back. Then it becomes about justice, making sure that her son can make it safely to trial. But then she says, just make sure my son is okay. And he says, you know what? Your son will be okay. I'll take care of it. I'll make sure your son lives. David takes the bait. And that's exactly where Joab and this woman wanted to get him. If you're going to pardon this killer, then why don't you pardon your own son? And it all becomes clear in case it wasn't already how Joab thinks about it. The woman says, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? Joab steps into action, not because it's personal to him per se, but because he views this as necessary for the nation, for the people of Israel. They can't be left hanging like this. They have no king. There's no successor. There's no plan. So he decides to push David in a direction, the the best direction he can think of. Now, we'll find out soon enough that this is a terrible idea. We'll even find out that Job doesn't even like Absalom that much. In fact, when Absalom rebels against David, spoiler alert, Joab chooses David's side without question. He even kills Absalom later. But what Joab is doing is he thinks this is the best thing for Israel. They need a king and Absalom is the next in line. He seems like the right choice. David, what are you going to do? You've been trapped. Now, what are you going to do? Now, let me tell you a story real quick. And this is related, but it's a little from left field. But let me tell you this. Think about it. Frank Haig was the um, mayor of Jersey City back in the early 1900s. And it was a different time when the mayor kind of ruled the town like with an iron fist, like an emperor, like a godfather, something like that. But the story goes, a teenager was skipping school. And for some reason, this went higher and higher up until it went all the way to the office of the mayor. And they bring this teenager in, a delinquent or whatever. And the guy says, the reason I'm skipping school is because I need to work for my family. So then the mayor says, get this guy out of here. Get him a job. He tells one of his agents, get this kid proper employment. And then the aide tries to protest. He says, but sir, the reason he's here is because it's illegal, right? He's not even 16 yet. He can't work. He needs to go to school. It's against the law. And then Frank Haig, you might not know the name, but you definitely heard this phrase before. He uttered the infamous words he said, against the law, I am the law. 
I am the law. Now, why do I bring that up? Because the woman wants David to render judgment. As the king, he is the highest court in the land. He is the unquestioned leader of Israel, humanly speaking. However, let me ask you a question. It might be so obvious, but humor me here. Let me ask you a question. Is David the law? Is David the law in Israel? No. Okay, I didn't hear anything, but no. He's not. The law was given to Moses from God himself. God's law rules the land. And what does the law say about murder? This wasn't voted upon. This was given by divine commandment. Exodus 20:13, you shall not murder. Or how about Leviticus 24:17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. This is the word of God. Amen. And there are more verses. What am I getting at? This woman, as wise and persuasive as she is, she manipulates David. David doesn't go to the law of God. He is rushed. He doesn't pray. He doesn't seek the word of the Lord from a prophet. He doesn't go find a copy of the law to read what it says for himself. Instead, he makes this judgment, this decision himself, based on his own feelings and his own thought process. Look at verse 14. She goes on to say, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground. I love the way she talks. There's a reason why I think Job got her. He says, uh, she says, we are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. And maybe that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. Now pay attention to this, verse 17. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God, be with you. I mean, she really butters him up here, flatters him a lot. You are like the angel of the Lord to know good and evil. No, he's not. Obviously, he's not. If you've been paying attention to what David's been doing for the past couple of chapters, I'm not hating on David here. David is a great man in a sense, but he's been making terrible, terrible decisions. In fact, if you remember, what did the serpent say to Eve? I know God said, don't eat of that fruit, but if you eat of it, you will be like God and you will be able to discern between good and evil. She's buttering him up. She's flattering him. She doesn't point him to God. Instead, she points him to himself. And so while on the surface, what happens here seems like the same thing as what happened with Nathan. It's really the exact opposite. It's a cheap knockoff. It's a counterfeit. It's when mankind tries to play God. As someone once said, Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience as against his feelings. To point him away from what he felt to what was right. But the woman of Tekoa's, as prompted by Joab, to rouse his feelings against his conscience. She doesn't point him to what's right. That was by design. She wants to appeal to his feelings, to his own situation, to his own wisdom. He feels compassion for her. He takes a step towards something that maybe isn't right at all. And he falls into this trap. And see, here's the thing. David, as the king, is called to render right judgments. 
That's his job. I mean, he has other things he's supposed to do too, but that is a part of his job. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not your own thoughts, not how great you are, not your own discernment. It has to start with God. David doesn't go to God. He goes deep within himself. And let me just say a word about spiritual leaders. Because David is, as the king of Israel, a spiritual leader. And we don't have a king of Israel over us in the same way. But we do have spiritual leaders. If a spiritual leader isn't deriving his authority, if he isn't getting his wisdom, if he isn't making his decisions based upon God and his word, then watch out. It's not going to be good. There are a lot of persuasive people out there. They know how to get us some appeal to our flesh. Do you want to be healthy and wealthy? Who doesn't? Who doesn't want to be healthy and wealthy? I don't because I'm godly, but most people do. Just kidding. Some appeal to our pride. This happens all the time, especially among the people who care about things like the truth and being right. They say so many other churches are going the wrong way. They don't really know what's up. But let me tell you what the real truth is. I know you don't see that in the text for yourself, but if you really knew the Greek and Hebrew, of course, then you would. That's what they do. Some appeal to half-truths from Scripture. Some appeal to just flattery. You have to know your Bibles and you have to follow people who submit themselves to the word of God first. And there really is no shortcut here. There's no quick way about it. It takes hard work to read the Bible. It's not easy to read the entire Bible, even in a whole year. Even if you read it once, you're not going to understand everything. But if we want real discernment, we need to make sure that we are people of the book. And usually David was. Many times, but here, notably, he is not. And this leads to the second point. So a failure of discernment, he lets this woman just manipulate him and get him to a certain place. Secondly, the failure of decision, which is about the need for true conviction. Look at verse 14 again. She says, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Again, it's a beautiful expression. We are like water spilled on the ground. Life is short, she's saying. But at the same time, God's desire is for the banished to return. God doesn't take away life. God doesn't want you to kill Absalom. God doesn't want you to put this off. God wants you to come back. Now, is this true? It's half true. And that's why it's so dangerous. I mean, 1 Timothy 2.4, it does say that God in one sense desires all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. But if you go back to the beginning of our journey, and not everyone was here then, but in the beginning of our journey in the old building, 1 Samuel, when Hannah, Samuel's mother, prayed, this is what she said in 1 Samuel 2.6. She said, the Lord kills and brings to life. Sometimes God is gracious. Sometimes God is just. There is no tension between the two. But the woman of Tekoa is pitting God's mercy and grace against his justice and wrath. And really, that's the dilemma in the heart of David. He doesn't know what to do. David loves Absalom. We see this very clearly later on. But at the same time, Absalom murdered Amnon, who he loved. Absalom uh, did some bad things that David can't just overlook because David actually loves God too. 
He wants to do what is right. But then at the same time, David doesn't want to be a hypocrite. David knows that he murdered somebody and he also committed adultery. Who is he to be the one to come down hard on Absalom? It's a mess in his own heart. He's stuck. And I think parents here, if I could just speak to you guys, and I'll speak about myself, have you ever found yourself in a dilemma like this? Because if you haven't, and I think you have, but if you haven't, you definitely will. Hopefully not exactly like this, where like your son murdered your other son. But have you found yourself stuck between your love for your child and needing to reckon with the bad choices that your child made? Of course, even in little ways. Wanting to defend your kid one moment, knowing that you can't come down on your kid because you see the exact same sin in your own heart. It is very, very difficult. And the reason I bring this up and make it more personal is because we have to understand that David really is in a predicament. It's not so easy. I might make it sound like it's easy. Just do one thing or the other. But you can see, we can appreciate why David is in such a bind. David is in a hard place. However, he, not, he needs to make a decision. See, there's a reason this chapter exists in this story. Joab was right, in a sense, to feel the need to push the action. Because for David, again, these aren't just personal matters. They're not just family matters. He's the king of Israel. If you look at verse 15 again, now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the king and maybe that the king will perform the request of his servant. Now she's back to that old fake story again, but what it's, what it's highlighting here is the role of the king. That if you have a problem, you got to go to the king. The king's responsibility is to take care of the people. Verse 16, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. The king has the power to deliver people from their troubles. Verse 17, and your servant thought the word of my Lord, the king will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God be with you. Yes, she flatters him. Okay, but did you hear how many times she called him the king? See, if she really did have a problem, as people did in Israel, then the king would have to make the ultimate decision. That was his job given by God. He's not just David the father. He's not just David the man. He's David the king. And that means he can't sit this one out. He can't just punt to his future self. If the ship is sinking, he's the captain. And the people are his responsibility. So look at the decision he makes. Verse 18. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord, the king speak. The king said, is the head of Joab with you in all this? I mean, the king's not a dummy. The king said, oh, the woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Okay, okay. Enough flattery, all right? But in case we thought David was totally unaware, that's not the case. Okay, he, he knows what's going on. He can smell this from far off. It's just, he's really struggling. He just doesn't know what to do. Verse 21. He knows Joab put him up to this, put her up to this, put him up to this. Verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, 
apparently was there the whole time. Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Okay, this is what Joab wanted the whole time. He wanted Joab, uh, he wanted Absalom and David to get back together again. He wanted Absalom to come back home. It was important for the new crown prince to be in Jerusalem. So everything seems good here, right? The story gets pushed along. A decision gets made. A boy comes home. But if you look at verse 24, check this out. And the king said, Absalom comes all the way back after a couple of years. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. You know, like what is going on in this chapter? What is going on with David? He brings him back, but doesn't bring him back all the way. In fact, he doesn't even see him. And we find out this goes on for two more whole years. I mean, he's so close and yet he's never been farther in a sense. And what we see here is that David actually does try to punt. He's like, Joab, do whatever you want to do. Bring him back. But when he comes back, David does not welcome him. He doesn't punish him either. He decides to just put him off to the side and let it simmer. Now skip down to verse 32. After a couple of years, Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I might send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. An ultimatum. And it gets there because David doesn't make a decision. He needs to, he must, but he doesn't. And Absalom eventually forces it. And I would argue that if this indecision didn't directly lead to the rebellion, it definitely was a big part of it. I remember years ago when I was studying biblical counseling, my professor was telling this story. And I kind of forget what he was telling me and kind of when he was telling the story, but I'll try to get the details as right as I can from my memory. But he was saying he was counseling this couple, this married couple, and it was very difficult. And he said when they came in, the wife, she just had this look on her face. She was checked out. But the husband, he had this look on his face where he was in a rage, which is not really that fun if you're doing counseling in any way. So they sit down in the office or whatever, and my professor just tries to, you know, break the ice a little. He says, so uh, what seems to be the problem? Obviously, there's major problems. And the husband just unloads, and he just goes off. And one of the things he says is, there is no love in our home. There is no love in our home. Look at her. <laughs> There's no love in our home. Now, my professor, he turned to us, I think. It was in the story. I kind of, I'm not a reliable witness here about this, but you get the gist, okay? I'm not saying that this is inerrant in any way, but he said, okay, so that's what he said. He said, there is no love in our home. He glared at his wife. He said, look at her. But then he said, if there's no love at all in the home, Biblically speaking, whose fault is that? Whose fault is that? He said, go to Ephesians 5. We turn to Ephesians 5. We look at the text. It says, husbands, 
love your wives as Christ loved the church. Not saying she's without sin. It takes two to tango, of course. But who explicitly is told that he must love in marriage? It's the husband. It's his responsibility first and foremost. And the reason I bring this up, here's what I'm getting at, is that all of us have certain responsibilities, correct? I mean, you might not be the king of Israel. You might not be the pastor of a church. You might not even be a husband or a father. But you have responsibilities to people in your life. It's a stewardship. And if you are a husband, you have a responsibility to your wife. If you are a parent, you have a responsibility to your kids. If you're a leader in the church, I preach to myself, you have a responsibility to the flock that God entrusts to you. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to be a light in the world, to be someone who accurately reflects who Christ is. We all have responsibilities that we are given. And yet, at the same time, there will be things that make fulfilling those responsibilities difficult. You will face trials and tribulations. There will be decisions that you have to make that are hard. Maybe you don't know exactly what to do in this instance, like David. Maybe you know what you have to do, but it just feels so hard, like that boat captain where he knows he's got to stay, but if he stays, he's going to die. So what is he going to do? Now, again, none of us will be king over God's people or even the captain of a ship, but you will be something. You are something. And God calls you to be responsible and accountable for whatever you have. Authority entails responsibility. So what I'm saying is, do you recognize that? Of course, I think we should hold our leaders to a higher standard. Of course, 100%. But do you hold yourself to that standard? If you're stressed, does that mean you check out from your family? Come on, this is real life. I'm saying we do this all the time. I'm having a bad week, therefore I just can't shepherd my kids. No. Are you the captain or are you not the captain? I'm not saying it's easy. In fact, uh, my friend was saying his favorite verse to remember as a pastor, he's also a pastor, is from the book of James where it says, teachers will be judged more strictly. Like, why is that your favorite verse, bro? Like, that makes me want to quit when I read it. Honestly, I'm like, I just got to cut my losses. We're responsible for who we're responsible for. And you know, when the uh, Sewell sank, everyone was trying to figure out what went wrong. It's crazy. I was trying to read about it. There's a lot of like different information about it. And I was going down a rabbit hole that I didn't want to go down. So I kind of pulled myself back. But basically what it seems like happened was they didn't really know the severity of the situation. So they told a lot of people to stay in their rooms until further notice. And then they didn't tell everybody to get out of their rooms when it got more serious. So a lot of people didn't even know to get out of their rooms until it was too late. Now, for many of them, Right, even though, I mean, for the captain, even though it wasn't maybe his fault that the ship sank, he didn't tell people. And this leads to the third and final point. A failure of decision is catastrophic. And this leads to the final point, which is a more general point, the failure of David. A failure of discernment, failure of decision, the failure of David, which is about the need for a true king. See, when God created humanity, let's go all the way back. He created mankind to rule. We might think the kingdom only began with Israel or with Jesus or something with Saul, but that's not the case. If you go to Genesis 128, you don't have to turn there. Let me read. And God blessed them and God said to them, Adam and Eve, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word dominion is kingdom language. Adam was created to rule, though he was never called a king explicitly. That's basically how he was supposed to function. He was to watch over and protect and care for God's creation. But as you know, things didn't go that good. In fact, he got kicked out of the garden himself. And because of this disobedience, all of mankind, uh, all of mankind was exiled and estranged from God. But then there was hope. Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A prophecy right at the beginning, right after the fall, that one of the offspring of Eve would crush Satan forever. A chosen one, you could call him. Now fast forward to Genesis 17. God spoke to a man named Abraham and he said to him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. It sounds familiar And it's more explicit, kings will come from your family. And then a ton happens, but eventually God created an entire nation from Abraham's family called Israel. And he saved them from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And as a brand new nation, God spoke to Moses, Exodus 19.6. And he said to them, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, I don't know if you're tracking with me. Hopefully you are. But Israel was supposed to be the set-apart nation and also a kingdom of priests. What are priests? Priests are go-betweens between heaven and earth. They are the ones who stand in the gap between the divine and the merely mortal. Israel is supposed to be an entire kingdom that filled that role in the world. And you can understand how it works. Humanity, because of sin, is cut off from God. But God calls a people to himself. And he says that you will be a priestly nation, that you will show the world and the nations of the world who I really am. But Israel was a kingdom without a king. They were a ship without a captain, so to speak. And when they wanted a king, God gave them Saul, the one that they thought would be good. He was known for his impressive outward appearance. But as we read, he failed spectacularly because his inner substance didn't match his outward stature. And then to bring us up to speed, God replaced Saul with someone different. And don't get me wrong, okay? He is different. David has a different heart. He is a man after God's own heart. He really did love God. And David was supposed to lead this kingdom of priests. And God made a covenant with him. He said that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The promise gets passed down. The chosen one promise, you could say, not just an offspring of Eve, but now more specifically, a king in the line of David would be the one who would reign forever and bring people back to God. That's the idea anyway. But in real life, we see that even David, even with his different heart, can't do it. And Israel is paying the consequences. Joab saw the problem. He just didn't have the solution. When David isn't leading well, then the kingdom isn't going well. And then we know that, okay, well, David, it's his son, right? It's his offspring that's going to bear the weight of the promise. Well, we look at his offspring. What does it show us? Verse 25. Now in all Israel... 
There was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. It's like three pounds of hair. And, you know, if you have like oil and stuff in your hair, it's pretty heavy. Anyway, there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. What is the text telling us? Why is this even here? We need to understand how things look. The promise is in the offspring. David is floundering. Now we look at Absalom, who is presumably next in line, and he's handsome. There's no physical blemish that he has. He looks great. And at first, that sounds fine. That sounds good. He looks maybe even like a king. But when you really think about it, it's very concerning. Why? Because that's all it says. I mean, boy here, this guy is basically another Saul. He's a guy whose head and shoulders above everyone else, but it's all stature, no substance. And there's more to this. Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Okay, Absalom is kind of a crazy guy. He's unhinged. And I think he became this way more and more and more as crazier things happened to him, as David let more and more things go. Now, it's been a while since we focused on him, but Joab is not a guy to mess with. He's the general of the army. He killed Abner, Saul's general, in cold blood. And if you look at Absalom, he just burns this guy's fields. Absalom is charming. He's cunning. He's handsome. He's extremely frightening. And he is the offspring of David that we are being shown. Verse 31, Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, "Uh, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here. And I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. It's a challenge. He said, do something. Now, verse 33, then Joab went to the king. So this happens again. He goes to the king. He tells him and he summoned Absalom. Finally, So Absalom came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. That's the end of the text. David brings him into his presence. Absalom bows. David kisses him. So there's no justice. Do you see that? David does not punish Absalom as the law requires. But at the same time, this is the worst of both worlds. There is no true reconciliation here either because what is missing? Forgiveness. There's no pardon here from David. And there's no repentance and pain for pardon on Absalom's part. This is not the parable of the prodigal son at all. Absalom never came to his senses. If there is some guilt in me, what did you do, bro? And David doesn't address it. And honestly, it could have gone either way. And I think it would have been better than this. Even if he had to do the painful thing and punish his son, that would have been better than just leaving it. Or if he tried to forgive him, I mean, yes, he did deserve death because he murdered Amnon, but David murdered Uriah and God forgave him. 
It's not like there aren't any prophets in Israel. They could have gone to Nathan. They could have sought the Lord. He could have taught him to repent. As Psalm 51 says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. But David doesn't do that. A polite bow, a cold kiss. And this is why I called this ending a failure of David himself. Because like Judas kissing the cheek of Jesus on the night he betrayed him by kissing Absalom here like this, David betrays the people he was called to protect because the violence and the anger of Absalom just grows and he almost burns down, not just Joab's field, but the entire kingdom. Now, do you remember how this passage started? We'll land this plane. The woman of Tekoa, verse four said, save me, O king. But at the end of this, David not only didn't end up saving anybody, he actually put everyone in danger. David didn't, add, didn't end up saving anybody. He couldn't even save anybody at all. He couldn't even save himself. He couldn't do anything. He didn't know what to do. He let the difficulty of the situation paralyze him. So what's the point? I think we could play Monday morning quarterback You know, we could play Monday morning king and say David should have done this or should have done that. I've done that with David many a time. But the point is, and David should have been better. David's actions in the past have directly led to his problems in the present. The point isn't that he should have gone back in time and never looked at Bathsheba. That's done with. That already happened. The point is that even the best of people aren't good enough. See, here's the temptation. The temptation is to think that if only there were some good leaders, then everything would be okay. If only the king could do what he was supposed to do and render right judgments all the time, then we would be saved and we would be delivered. If only the pastor never sinned, then our church would be great. If only our leaders in government were perfect, then our country would be great. And in theory, yeah, that would be true and awesome. But what we see with David, and it's underlined for us again and again and again, is that even the best of us aren't good enough because no one is perfect. No one is righteous. No, not even one. David is not good. Adam wasn't good. Absalom is terrible. And the Bible, what it intends to do is to drive us to despair in the hope of somehow being able to find salvation apart from God. It's not in our leaders. It's not in you. It's not in me. And that's why hundreds of years later, in the first chapter of the New Testament, we're introduced to a man named Joseph. He is of the line of David. It hasn't been broken for centuries. And it says this in the 20th verse of the first chapter, but as you consider these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then listen to this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
the best of humanity isn't good enough. So what did God do? He himself stepped into the pages of his own story. God was born into our sinful world to be our king. But he, unlike Absalom, didn't look any special way. In fact, the scripture says he had nothing about him, uh, nothing about his appearance that was special. He was very low key, surprisingly. And then it all culminated in something that looked horrific. It looked like the ultimate defeat on a cross where he died in agony. However, on the cross, Jesus, the true king and son of David, didn't die for his own sins. He died for ours. He bore the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. Not that he deserved it, but for those who did. He won defeating sin and death and Satan. And he made a way for us to overcome the tension. He made it so that the guilty could be punished. And he made it so that the sinful could be forgiven. Yes, we deserve punishment for every sin we've ever committed but because he himself bore our trespasses, we can be free. See, David cannot save, but Jesus can. And we'll close with this. The captain of the Sewell faced a lot of outrage just to close the story. And I read that he was actually arrested. They tried him. They charged him with the deaths of all these people who are aboard that ferry. And he is in jail right now, apparently. And he's not that young, so I think he's going to be there for the rest of his life. He was the captain and he had the responsibility. And we'll end with this. We all have a responsibility too. Different responsibilities, but our responsibility is to discern rightly. And the only way we can do that is to put in the hours to know God's word. It's not just about being into a certain teacher or into theology in general. You got to read the Bible. Again, there's no shortcut. It's got to be in you. And then we need to act. We need to make hard decisions as our callings require and then live with the consequences. Inaction isn't an option. We need to try to be as faithful as we can because we will give an account to God for everything he has entrusted to us for our stewardship. Do you remember the one servant who just buried the talent? He was judged the most harshly. However, all that being said, the truth is, as human beings, we are going to mess up. All of us will. It's not an excuse. It just is what it is. So the end of it all, at the end of it all, don't put your ultimate hopes in people, definitely not in yourself. You can't save yourself. Don't trust yourself. Instead, look to him. There is one who is the king of kings, and he has mapped out all of eternity, and he is working all things for good. Look to him who is able to deliver us out of every single adversity. And that's what David says at the end of his life. Look to him who alone can save your soul. And when you do, when he is first, and when you bow the knee in true submission and worship, and when you know that his love for you is not cold, but real, then believe it, everything else will fall into place. Will you bow your heads with me? God, we look to you. God, we need your grace to be faithful. We need your grace when we are faithless. We look to you. We know that you alone can save. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.